Morning, everyone. Uh, if you remember my last message, you'll know full well that I won't be volunteering to go to Fountain Gate with the youth group. Um, and if you don't know what that means, you just go back um, into the podcast and you can hear our series on Nehemiah, which was great. Um, last week, Ads um, preached our first in a three-part series um, on the book of uh, 2 Peter. So I just want to recap um, Peter's writing as an old man. Um, he knows that he's close to leaving this world and he wants to leave behind his final thoughts and his wisdom for the church. And as Ad said, uh, the book begins with the remedy for the problems that he's going to discuss later on. And that remedy is spiritual maturity. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says that God has given us everything we need for a godly life. And we've been saved, not just for our own benefit, but so that we can participate in God's work and be productive. And Peter is no liar. Chapter 1 um, makes it really clear that the Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus. The apostles based their teaching and their authority on their eyewitness experiences and accounts of Jesus and what he did and what they saw with their own eyes. However, just because God's truth has been made plain, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be challenges, and that's what chapters 2 and 3 are all about. And so I wonder, have you ever heard a dodgy sermon before? Um, and to be honest, as I prepared this week, I wondered, are you going to hear a dodgy sermon this week? Um, what actually makes a dodgy sermon anyway? Or to put it more positively, what makes a good one? Now, if I roamed around and asked five or ten of you what makes a good sermon, I'd probably get five or ten different answers. Um, some people love the preacher to include personal anecdotes. Um, others just think to themselves, oh, for goodness sake, get on with it, and they find them distracting and annoying. Some love a bit of humour, others not so much. Some like structure. Just give me three key points, a bit of application at the end, pray and let me go home. Whereas others, they just want to go on a journey with the preacher as they slowly reach a point of clarity. I mean, because of all that, preaching is actually quite challenging. Um, but honestly, those things that I've mentioned uh, really come down to taste. What's really important is the faithful proclamation of God's truth. And that's what Peter is concerned about in chapter 2 of today's passage. Um, and to be honest, today's passage is a challenging one. Um, so I'm actually going to read the entire chapter to you shortly um, because I think it's important that you actually hear it in its entirety before I start to explain it. Um, but before I do that, let's pray that the God of truth would speak to us today. So let's pray. Our Lord, you are the God of truth. And as your word is read and taught, please work in us through your spirit so that we can become wise disciples of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to read this um, chapter to you. This is what Peter says. But there were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. 
In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals they too will perish. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning and seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezar, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. How you going? <laughs> These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. How would you react if you were given that passage to preach on? I just read it a thousand times and prayed a lot. That's how I reacted. So let's go through it. Um, Peter's first point is that false teachers are an inevitability and that this sort of thing is by no means new. And maybe even scarier than that, people will listen to and follow these false teachers. Have a look at verse 1. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Just like there were false prophets, there will be false teachers. Remember that we heard last week that we know the truth because of the Old Testament prophets and the apostles' eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and resurrection. So I want to pause here and 
just ruminate on God's truth for a moment because it's really important that we as believers immerse ourselves in God's Word because the Bible is God's unified story. Um, So here's just some brief passages that illustrate this from four different sections of the Scripture. So after the fall, God says this um, to the deceiving serpent in Genesis chapter 3. It says, um, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so we're set up here in this passage to look for somebody, a human, who will deal with human evil at its source, that deceptive serpent, someone who will crush that serpent's head, but also one that in doing so will be struck on the heel. Now, if you strike a serpent on the head, it's going to die, but if it bites you, you're going to die too. So the one who's going to get rid of evil at the source will be themselves killed. So we're looking for the serpent crusher who's going to get bitten. Then flick forward a lot and we find Isaiah chapter 53. And it says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fast forward again and Jesus says this in Mark chapter 8. He says, this is, he is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then again, fast forward to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says these words, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice how he emphasizes according to the Scriptures twice there. These four passages come from four different sections of Scripture, the law, the prophets, the Gospels and the epistles. And it's just a little, tiny, helpful summary of God's redemptive work in history. This is God's truth. And it's also the exact truth that these false teachers were denying. The very true and the very good news of the gospel is clear. Jesus is the way. He is the serpent crusher that we were waiting for. But he did it in an odd way by being killed himself. And so a false teacher is easily identified. Look at the second half of verse 1 of today's passage. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I can feel a little bit uneasy or a bit uncomfortable reading words such as these, swift destruction on themselves. But stop, it stands to reason. If Jesus is the only way to be saved, and is Jesus the only way to be saved? A few of you said yes, that's really good. Jesus is, if Jesus is the only way to be saved, then those who deny him, more than that, 
teach and encourage others to do the same can't be saved unless they repent. That's what it says. It says they even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. They're denying Jesus the only way. Rather than preach and promote the truth, they bring the way of truth into disrepute. It says that in verse 2. They're greedy, verse 3, and they fabricate stories, also in verse 3. And Peter continues by reminding us that God is a God of justice. He's always been and always will be that way. His holiness demands justice. And Peter gives three examples of God's justice, all from Genesis. First of all, he mentions God's judgment on the angels who sinned. Now, this is a rabbit hole that we're not going to go down today. But it could be a reference to the mysterious sons of God who married women in Genesis um, chapter 6. Or it could be about the angels who sided with the devil and fell. Either way, God was right to judge. Secondly, Peter mentions the great flood. And lastly, he mentions the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And encouragingly, in the last two examples, in the case of Noah and in the case of Lot, he reminds us that God always rescues and protects the righteous remnant. And again, it's important to pause here. A misconception that I hear regularly from those within and those outside of the church is that the God of the Old Testament is the God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. Not true. No. As Peter points out in this section, even when judging human evil, God would spare the righteous. And those who worship the one true God and put their trust in him will be saved. And that's true throughout Scripture, and it's true for us too. And so now Peter continues by describing what these false teachers are like. And verse 10 says that these false teachers follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. These false teachers feed their selfish desires and refuse to submit to authority. And this could be three types of authority, and it's probably all three. They refuse to respect the authority of Scripture, they refuse to accept the authority of the apostles, and they refuse to accept the authority of Jesus. All three of these lead to the same outcome, which is a denial of the Lord Jesus and inevitable judgment. And these false teachers are bold and arrogant. They forget that they're human and they play God. Even angels who are more powerful than humans know their place. Ironically, these people in their pride, these false teachers elevate themselves. But in doing so, the opposite happens to them because they become animal-like in their behavior. They're selfish. They act out of instinct. They only ever think of themselves and they'll be destroyed. And that's the thrust of verses 11 and 12. And Peter doesn't stop there. He gives us clear indicators that help us identify these false teachers. And what gives them away is their behavior. Verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of idolatry, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. This is not the case of a once-off error. These false teachers deliberately choose lives of sin. They don't even try to hide it. They get wildly drunk in broad daylight. They commit sexual sins while they gorge themselves at their feasts and they do it in the company of God's people. 
And even worse, they seduce the unstable. They prey on the weakness of new believers and vulnerable people. Even more than that, they're greedy. No wonder Peter calls them an accursed brood. And no wonder Jesus said in Matthew 18, if anyone causes one of these little ones, the little ones being those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Peter's not going rogue here. He is repeating what Jesus said himself. And Peter goes on in verse 19 to say, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And it seems that the false theology at the heart of these false teachers' worldview was that you can keep on sinning because God will forgive you anyway. And Paul addresses this very question at the beginning and throughout Romans 6. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? These false teachers promise freedom. And they promise the world. They say that you can have all the worldly pleasures of sex, money and drink. That you can use people for your own gain, for your own pleasure. That you don't even have to hide this sort of behavior. And you can do what you want, when you want. And if you've done the wrong thing in the process, which you probably haven't anyway, God will forgive you. This is a dangerous watering down of the seriousness of sin and a disgusting cheapening of grace. And this isn't freedom. It's slavery to selfishness, it's greed, and it's idolatry. Um, And when I was reading this, I was reminded of a good friend of mine who I used to play bowls with. I'm a lawn bowler, don't hold it against me. Greatest game in the world. And we used to talk, he was um, quite openly an atheist, and we used to talk about faith and, and different things. We used to debate one another, and they were fantastic conversations. And one particular day, we were having a chat, and I said to him, what's holding you back? Why don't you want to believe in God? Why don't you want to trust Jesus? And he said, I don't like being told what to do. And I said, tell me more. And he said, well, to be honest, I don't want some God out there giving me rules and telling me how I should live my life. I'm the king of my life and I want to do what I want to do. Which is a very honest answer, isn't it? What a thoroughly human person (laughs) he is. And I said, well, I've got a challenge to you, for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, you want freedom, don't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. Well, in the next week, don't make one single selfish choice. Just do the right thing, the selfless thing, every single time for a week. And he goes, that's ridiculous. No one can do that. And I said, well, you're not really free then, are you? At which point he actually got a little bit angry with me. But it's true. He's a slave to sin. He's not free. And so Peter concludes with one final sting in the towel. So I'll read from verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. 
Now, when I first became a Christian and decided that Jesus was my Lord, I was about 12 years old. I was at a camp and I prayed that God would forgive me. And for some reason, at 12, I had the very real sense of my own sin and my own shortcoming and the sense of lightness and freedom and that weight coming off my shoulders was incredible. I don't want to go back to carrying that around. That would be like a dog returning to its vomit (laughs) or a pig that's really clean jumping back in the mud. Uh, Can you imagine the lost son from Jesus' um, famous parable? Six months after being welcomed into the back into his home, back into his father's arms with the party, going back to feeding pigs? What a downer that would be. And that's what these teachers were encouraging their followers to do. Even though you've tasted God's freedom and God's forgiveness in Jesus, it's okay. You can go back to that old way of life. What a horrible burden to encourage someone to pick up again. Well, I wonder, what what do you make of all of that? (laughs) To quickly recap, number one, false teachers will inevitably appear in the church. Number two, a false teacher is one who denies the lordship of Jesus, Jesus who purchased us and will be judged accordingly. Number three, a false teacher will be a slave to their selfish desires, even though they promise freedom and they will lure others into their sin. And number four, once we've tasted the sweetness of God's love and grace in Jesus, There's no turning back. And all of this might might cause you to stop and and to think and to even worry about whether or not you might be or I might be or we might be susceptible to false teaching. Well, they say that federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing then when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. So let's immerse ourselves in God's truth so that we can live in true freedom that lasts. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, thank you so much that you want to be known. So much so that you sent your son into this world to to live and to breathe and to teach and ultimately to die so that the price that we couldn't be pay, couldn't pay, could be paid. And thank you that he rose again, that he has a victory, and that now he offers us, he offers us true freedom, true freedom from our sin, true freedom from our worldly desires. And please, by your Spirit, change us. Change us from the inside so that we want what you want and help us to immerse ourselves individually and collectively as a whole church in your truth. And Lord, please raise up a generation of good, godly teachers who take your word seriously and help them to boldly proclaim your truth because you're good and you want to be known. Amen.